Students' Union, The Scoop on Sunday. Hi there and welcome to The Scoop on Sunday. My name is Thomas Copeland. Stay with us on Facebook Live for the next two hours. We're bringing you this show from home this week. New lockdown restrictions mean that the Students' Union is still shut, but we're not letting that stop us and we've got yet another packed show for you tonight. As student nurses in Northern Ireland are awarded £2,000 by the government, I've been talking to those on the front line about working with COVID patients day in, day out, and the incredible emotional strain being placed on the shoulders of students as the UK death count surges past 100,000. The SDLP, they want to go even further and give all students in Northern Ireland £500. We'll be taking that proposal apart later on tonight. More students than ever before are questioning why. When everything else in life is changing, their tuition fees are remaining the same. Is it fair that students pay the same for online learning as they would for in-person teaching? And how do we make sure that COVID doesn't disadvantage students come assessment time? Jason Bunting is with us on the show to chat. This week, we launched the Scoop News site. Its editor, Olivia Fletcher, will be with us here to chat. And we'll be hearing from two of this week's writers reporting on their articles about online learning and dating in lockdown. We'll also be crossing the pond for a catch up on the weeks of chaos in American political life. Plus, why are poor white working class kids going to university at rates far below any other group in society? Plus, we've got all your favorite regular segments, what's trending, some good news stories, an update on the sports news, and we'll also be finding out what it's been like for international students stuck in Belfast over Christmas. It's all here on the show tonight. It's The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for being with us. Okay, now this week, Robin Swan, the health minister, announced a one-off special payment of £500 for health workers in Northern Ireland, a special recognition of their work during this pandemic. This scheme is similar to one announced in Scotland, but it also includes a £2,000 payment for non-salaried students who are on clinical placement in the health service. I'm joined now by Katie Niclera, SU Welfare Officer and Trisha Pinwella, uh, school rep for the School of Nursing and Midwifery. Trisha, thank you for being with us. Katie, thank you for being with us. Uh, Trisha, you've been uh, on the front line yourself while studying. You're in second year. Uh, t- talk us through, I mean, what this payment means to you and the people that you kind of work with, your peers, the people that I suppose you represent as a rep. What does it mean? Oh, apologies for that there. Um, yes, um, this this payment has been definitely a great help for um, for us, especially that are working on the front line. And in terms of um, with our placement, it, it is tough going since we are expected to be um, uh, going on placement around 37 and a half hours a week. And on top of that, with no financial gain, it's really hard to balance that off, especially with our course being 50 percent. Um, expected to do uh, classes and 50% on placement and um, you know uh, the, the payment definitely helps in terms of you know students out there that are aren't living at home that are needing to support their family that are needing to um, support themselves um, especially during during the pandemic and um, with that case you know quite a lot of us don't really have a choice at, the, at this rate you know and I could honestly speak on behalf of other students out there that are financially struggling um, 
being in this situation, you know, um, it's not like it's something that us as student nurses or midwifery students have have chosen to be in. You know, it's not a decision that we would have anticipated at the start that our commitment and our, our dedication to take the time to, to look after patients as well as, you know, um, developing our learning. Um, financially, it's it was it was a big it was a big um strike in 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 our in our um position Tr- trisha let me ask you this you're on placement yourself you said yeah. just there 50 you know nursing's 50 percent sort of teaching 50 percent placement mm-hmm. what's it like on placement at the moment you've been in hospitals you've been in respiratory wards give us an idea if you can of what it's like to be working in a ward right now in the middle of a pandemic it's it's definitely um, a different environment, a whole different world. To be honest with you, you know, coming in, everyone um, very cautious with each other, um, the whole idea of being, um, you know, the, the anxiety really to ever be with someone you never know if they're ever going to be having symptoms or asymptomatic symptoms, and coming home from work, um, catching anything. As well as that, when you're looking after patients, there's this whole thing with, uh, you know, patient-centered care and having to um, address all their unique needs. It's it's hard to even build that relationship, as well as being careful of, um, you know. Um, catching anything from them you know uh, we're all wearing our our full PPE gear and even that in itself um like shows a lot of struggle during work because it limits us in our movement it limits us in our communication especially with patients that um have you know cognitive impairments or patients with dementia you know seeing them not in full gear um you know how like the question is how we can reassure them in that case especially with very um Trisha, does it does it have a toll on your mental health? I wonder. You spend, you know, when you're on placement, you spend all day. I'm sure long hours during the day in a position where you're dealing with a virus that, in many cases, has seen uh, the end of of hundreds of thousands of people's lives. Does it take a toll on your mental health when you go home at night? A hundred percent, because quite a lot of the time. Um, you do everything you can on placement. Uh, you know, all all the skills and the training they give you you know most of the time sometimes it's just not enough it's just not enough to support the patients it's not enough to reassure family it's not enough to comfort them and even then patients that are that are dying you know being apart from their families and that's the biggest part of it and in nursing you're expecting to show um all the care and all the affection to them but you know with the social distancing and and with the circumstances now it's different and I wish we could get more even as students and, and supporting staff as well, which we could give more to show that, you know, and to reassure everyone else that we're trying the best as much as we can. And sometimes it's just not enough and it does it does limit us. I often wonder, Trish, you know, when I see uh, pictures from hospitals at the moment, there's there are some things obviously that nurses and doctors can do to help patients and they're doing it. When is there an element of guilt that ever gets in your mind or, or when you when you just can't help somebody when somebody passes away with COVID? Uh, obviously, there's nothing more that you could have done. But do you ever think to yourself, you know, is there an, is there an element of guilt in your mind when somebody passes away that's been in your care? You couldn't have done anything about it. But that, does that weigh in your mind? 
I think, and you know, any student that's involved in an aspect of care in that type of environment, um, we always have this, you know, imposter syndrome, the, the doubt in our mind that, you know, we, we don't have the courage, we don't have the ability, we don't have the skills. But I just think it takes a lot of um, thought and reflection. And I think it should be um, improved or promoted within the healthcare area that we are trying the best we can. And it's to limit that idea that just because you know, there was nothing else we could do. That doesn't mean anything that we have done isn't acknowledged. You know, at the, at the end of the day, um, you're there to to dedicate all that time and effort to look after those patients. So. And, and Trisha, as a final thing, because I want to I want to ask Katie a question here. Yes, is no um, this money two thousand pounds? Uh, is it about the money, or is it about the recognition for you? For myself personally, or yeah, for you. Um, for me, definitely more the recognition I'd find. And I think it's because, you know, on taking the financial aspects outside, you know, you start developing really great interpersonal relationships with patients and, you know, learning about their background, their life story, um, you know, what they, what their background was and, and the relationship with other people, you know, having that personal connection with someone is is vital. And in this type of job, I think it's very significant. And whenever they pass, no financial aspect or materialistic thing could ever replace that type of connection. I find so. Do you do you ever regret when you're in work, Trisha, be you know, <laughs> training to be a nurse right now? Ever do you ever have any niggling regrets about choosing that path? Um more exhausted but not regret because if if I did regret then you know uh, I wouldn't be here you know it's it's easy enough to decide whether or not or something then you know if I'm not comfortable with it or if I don't want that anymore but this is something and um, this job this career is something I've been right on from from a very long time and no matter even if it gets difficult um I still say to myself just to remember why you started this why am I wanted to be a nurse why Am I wanting to be here to look after these people? And every day I, I learn so much more and every day I get to meet these amazing people, amazing staff, and that will never that will never change, to be honest. Kitty, you wrote a piece actually for the Scoop News blog this week and I want to read out a couple of lines on it because I, I think it is uh, extraordinary in terms of what we've just heard from Tricia. You wrote, uh, nursing's a vocation by its very nature. Those who choose to study nursing and midwifery are kind, compassionate and caring people who want to make a positive impact on the lives of those they care for. They're not in it for the money or the praise, but for the satisfaction you get for caring for a patient. Katie, you're a social worker yourself. I wonder, you've just heard Tricia talk about there, uh, the, the rationale, what goes through her mind when she is a nurse on the front line. What does that make you think? Yeah, I just think, you know, it's something I, I tried to capture in my article for the scoop, but it's something I find time and time again in my work with nursing students and even from nurse, knowing nursing students before I started in this role, that, you know, these students are absolutely remarkable in, in absolutely everything they do. And something that came up time and time again with all the uncertainty and all the changes that have been asked of these students and every time they've been asked to step up or to go to work or to, to take on any additional responsibility, they've all said, yes, what can I do? Because it's their duty. they feel it's their duty and, and they just really, really want to make that positive impact and really, really care for students. But on the flip side of that, 
these students are then being taken advantage of for that very thing. You know, on, on no other degree courses outside of health and social care are students asked to do full-time placements for 50% of their degree and not get paid for it. So why is it being asked of these students? Um, you know, these students then are, are so caring, so kind that they really, really want to help their patients. Um, but then, you know, the fact is if, if they're not getting paid, you know, I, I just don't see it as a fair thing. Mm -hmm. How did you get here in terms of, Katie, because you wrote an article earlier this week, it was about respecting uh, health care workers. How did we get to the point where £2,000 is being offered to non-salaried students? That is different from the scheme, as I said, in the rest of the UK. Uh, well, I mean, why is that happening in Northern Ireland and not elsewhere? Um, what have you and the SU been doing in order to get there? Yeah, so we've been working on this for a long, long time, um, a very, very long time. I've been working with my colleague, Ryan, in Ulster University Students' Union. Um, he's been representing his students, I've been representing mine, and we've we've really taken a joint approach to this um, because it is the same collective issues for all these students across the North. Um, so we, we began a long, long, long ago um, when the nursing midwifery standards had changed in September, we were looking at it to say, why is this happening? Why are our students no longer getting any kind of financial support for this work? Um, and then that kind of resulted in November time, we wrote a letter to the Minister for Health um, uh, asking about why all health and social care students aren't receiving more financial support. Um, it took two uh, two months to get a response from Mr. Minister Swan, um, and in that response, he, he just said, "Well, these students' bursaries, um, they can avail of free parking at hospitals now," and and he completely missed the point of, of why we had written the letter. Um, from then, we we began building a campaign, um, and I've been working very very hard behind the scenes to kind of get this up and going. Um, we've presented to the APG, so the All Party Group for Higher and Further Education twice now um, on why these students are in hardship and why they need more support and we've been in contact with many MLAs and counsellors. Do you know students, Kitty, who are struggling to get by? I do. I know them personally um, and it is really, really difficult to see students who, who are doing such incredible work be in such a difficult position. And, and talk, then, give us an idea, Kitty, of some of those stories. I mean, what does it mean to be struggling to get by if you're a nurse right now? Yeah, so we actually put a call out last week for student stories to help us campaign on this. Um, and in those student stories, I have received 90 student stories to date from health and social care students. And it's a really harrowing read. If you go through, you've got students who have said that they're they're relying on food banks, students who say they, they purely live off loans from their family to feed their own children, students who are, are so close to dropping out, students who are really struggling mentally with, with the severe pressure on them right now. Um, there are so many different student cases, but an awful, awful lot of them refer to their mental health and well-being and to the financial situation. Mm -hmm. Trisha, is that, does that kind of chime with the experiences that you find uh, talking with your peers, food banks struggling to feed children, uh, severe impacts on mental health? Is that the reality of what of the effects that this pandemic is having on student nurses at the moment? 100%. Um, even then, I've known uh, some people that know that they've lost jobs as well. And that would just leave to this, you know, majority of the time, the student nurse himself to be the, the breadwinner of, of the family and single, single parents out there, um, most definitely. Um, I can only imagine how much time and effort it is to, you know, look after the kids as well as balancing off with their with their lessons as well as on placement. It's it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. 
I wonder, uh, to finish up, Tricia, what is your message to people um, who might be listening to this, who think to themselves, uh, you know, how can I make life a little bit easier for, for student nurses? When you're, in, when you're in, on the front line in a ward, what is it that you wish that ordinary people out in the world would do? Um, would you believe it or not? It's, it's not, I, don't, I, I would say, it's, I don't think it's anything, you know, massive uh, students really ask for, but even um, saying thank you or asking how their day is or, you know, having that small, short conversation with the student makes an awful lot of difference of what they do on the board because quite a lot of the time there will be students out there that have never been exposed to a caring environment before, that have never been in a hospital environment before, especially during a pandemic. Um, those small interactions make a world of a difference because it just shows that that person is valued, that person is acknowledged and that person is involved in, in the healthcare team because quite a lot of times students feel that they're separate from the healthcare team or, you know, they're different or, oh, they're not sure um, where they really belong. But quite a lot of the time recognising that um, would make a world of a difference, especially of their training. And uh, I can honestly say after after they qualify, um, a lot of those small positive interactions um, they'll never forget. I certainly don't. I certainly will never forget all the positive interactions that I've had. Do you ever forget a patient, Trisha? Or do you always remember them? I honestly, um, each each encounter with each patient has been unique for, for every encounter that I've had. Um, a lot more, there are a lot more difficult um, situations than most, you know, in terms of others passing and, you know, you, you can encounter challenging patients, but um, I think in each in each encounter, there's the learning opportunity. So, not really, I would say. I meant that to me last question, Tricia, but something you said just struck me, which is that I have probably, um, my grandfather died not that long ago, and I find that a harrowing experience being in a hospital, and, and I, I find that really difficult. And I often wonder when you look at nurses, when you, you know have to walk in and out, they get to know these people, even on a sort of a minimal level, how on earth you can carry on a day in, day out, when the reality of your job is, is, is that often people die. Uh, do you think that you develop as a nurse a, a thick skin or is there some other kind of coping mechanism that means that you can keep going into work knowing that you're walking into a ward where, you know, at the end of the day, 10% of the people who are there won't be with you anymore? I'm not really sure how, um, if I'm speaking on behalf of of the rest, but um, it, from how I've learned it is it doesn't get any easier. Um, we have not, we've acknowledged, well, I have acknowledged that it does get harder. It doesn't get any easier, but um, it's not even fair to say, oh, it's life. You know, you acknowledge people die every single day, but that doesn't mean that, you know, before the days that, Counting the days before um, they're gone, those interactions, as I've said earlier, um, has a value to that patient. Like um, a few years ago when I used to work in a care home in dementia, I had, uh, I had a resident that didn't have any family. And even then, because no one visited him, my interaction with him changed his behavior, it, 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 you know, he was more enthusiastic to be up every day. And that's what I'm saying, like counting the days before he did pass away finally, um, I never left him. And I could honestly say a lot of a lot of the care workers out there would know exactly how that feels like. Um, it's, it's hard, but 
it, it definitely doesn't get any easier. And I think, again, it, it, it grows, it, it shows a lot of development and growth as, as, as a person. I wouldn't say there's any sort of um, formal structure or coping mechanism. And I, I, I think it just takes um, to be human, really, to have that empathy towards patients and towards people, even, even if they're difficult, even if they're challenging. Mm-hmm. Trisha, thank you very much no for talking to us. Katie, I want to give the final word to you. Uh, actually, Trisha, let me ask you this. What, what age are you? I'm 20. <laughs> now, see, this is what I find extraordinary, which is that I'm uh, 22, and I know so many 20-year-olds who hadn't, wouldn't have a quarter of the maturity that you or, I suppose, your fellow nurses have. Katie, I, it's extraordinary in some ways, isn't it, that these are, you know, people like Trisha are students who go to Queen's, along with me and along with hundreds of others, what do you take away from what you've heard Trisha talking about? Well, I suppose the first thing on that is, is it's, you know, these students are extraordinary in themselves, but the fact is they've been doing this for years. For decades, our student nurses have been going into the wards and doing this incredible work for nothing. So I think that's the first point on that. And the second point is, um, you know, these students just deserve so much more than, than what they're getting at the moment. Like this £2,000 is, is a really a start for these students. Um, and there's a lot more work needed to make sure that these students have bursaries that meet living costs and that these students are, are taken care of and respected and valued when they do their work on the wards. Because as you can hear from Tricia, that work is just invaluable. Every single patient that, that Tricia cares for, you know, if you multiply that across how many nursing students we have at Queen's, how many nursing students we have in the North, like that's a massive amount of in, amount of patients who have been cared for and impacted by our student nurses. Um, and that's something I think we, we really owe our student nurses for all the work they've done, especially over the last year. Tricia, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for being a nurse. Thank you for being on placement. Katie, thank you for being with us and uh, for telling your perspective and your story as well. Thank you both. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Katie Nicleira, SU Welfare Officer, and Tricia Pinwella, Rep for the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Queen's. Uh, that was an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed that and I took a lot away from it. So thank you both. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, now Rose Winter is with me. Rose is a BA literature student and she had a piece this week on the Scoop News blog looking at the online learning from a completely different angle. We've heard a lot uh, on this show and elsewhere about students who are finding it difficult, students who hate online learning and all the problems with that form of teaching. Uh, but what about the people for whom online learning really works? Uh, Rose, thank you very much for being with us. Why don't you talk us through, first of all, what your piece was about this week on the Scoop News blog? Yeah, so hi Thomas and I wrote this article because I there's a lot of dialogue at the moment about what's going on with online learning and you know interrupted studies but there's this sort of advantage of online university lectures that isn't really being talked about or doesn't seem to be being noticed as much and that's the fact that recorded lectures are actually increasing accessibility for all students um, not just students that have additional access needs, but everyone. And it's kind of ensuring that students can really access the product that we're at the end of the day paying for, which is, you know, to put it a bit cynically, that is what's going on here. Um, and I think it's just really interesting as well. Like uh, writing my article, I ended up exploring how, especially Queen's, but this issue was playing out before the pandemic in a way that Queen's were refusing to do this before the pandemic. And now it's... Um, 
a service that is being rolled out. And I think it's just, we need to ask why this is happening. So a lot of students and activists, you know, have across the country, but also now at Queen's, even before the pandemic, were asking for lecture materials to be made online, you know, made available whether a student can attend in person or not. And we, we were continually told no. And it was something that was being rolled out in a couple of universities across England, but it was by no means universal. Let, let's talk about the specific groups then, I suppose, Rose. So as you mm. say, online learning is preferable to some people. What for, for what types of people, what groups of people did, have you found, have you heard that online learning really works? And then a sort of vice versa, the kind of learning that we had before where uh, the university was trying to get everyone to be there in person, uh, though it didn't work for those people. What groups are we talking about here? Well, I've actually found something really surprising in this because, as you can imagine, for people who have mental health conditions, chronic pain conditions, people who have additional access needs because of disabilities or mental health issues, of course, online learning is a lot more accessible and a lot easier for them to be able to access. But what I've actually found in asking around is that you know, everyone is finding this a lot easier. People are saying that their, um, you know, their con concentration and focus levels have, of course, been affected by the pandemic and it's a lot easier for someone to be doing it in their own time than, hey, you know, you have to be here at this specific hour and if not, you've missed the boat, you're never going to know that, you know, that content. So it's actually a case that, um, you know, all groups are finding this a lot easier and a lot more accessible. Let me ask you this then. I get the sense, Rose, that there's a... a sort of notwithstanding the things that you just said, there is also a general sense that it can sometimes be harder to engage with a subject when you're learning through your laptop, whether that's through a lecture, maybe that's in a tutorial, everybody's camera's off, you're not being able to pick up, you know, those kind of uh, physical cues that and verbal cues that you might when you're in person. Um, uh, how much of a benefit is it being in class and is that benefit sufficient that the university was previously right to say, no, actually, we really want to encourage students to be there in person? Because there's an agreement that people prefer physical, but, you know, but I'm wondering uh, how much do you really lose by moving online? Yeah, so I think that's a really good point. There is obviously a real benefit to being in person. You get a lot more, you know, in-person engagement, you get, you know, people improving their communication skills and getting that kind of one-on-one -on -one time with the teacher almost, um, even in a group sense. But there is a sense as well that, you know, whilst the majority of people do feel that they need online teaching and that that's something that's been taken away, I think personally, and I've, you know, I've seen this a lot, is that the, com you know, the future of universities is going to be a combination of in-person and online teaching. You know, I've heard many people saying that they want to go back to online, but they want to be able to go back at the end of the day and, you know, be able to go back over that content because it is available to them. There's a sense that, you know, it's not just going to be in person that's going to work for everyone after this, but even before this, but now this has just kind of exposed this issue. Let me ask you this, then I wonder though, Rose, because um, I think you're right, and a lot of people, students would agree when you say that online learning is definitely more convenient. But do you think that there's a risk at all that that go in the future, maybe when, when, when universities start to say, well, we'll take a bit of online from this pandemic and we'll keep some of the physical, is there a risk that we could be trying to reach convenience at, at the risk of kind of depth that and real engagement because if we move everything online and that does definitely 
work for some students. It means for the students who otherwise might have been there in person, have they lost something? I mean, is there something to be said actually for trying to coerce students and force them to be there in person where possible because there's a depth of engagement and a depth of understanding and that's what university is all about? Yeah, I think there is kind of that risk that it might be at the, you know, at the cost of convenience. But I think the online content will be able to sort of sustain that in the sense that um, with a combination, you've got a situation where anyone who is, does want to go in person can. And I think that that is what's going to happen after the pandemic is over. But there just also has to be that availability and access for people who can't or who were previously being not coerced, but, you know, situationally coerced in the sense that, well, you know, your lectures are there, you can either make it or you can't. And I think that's what this is about. Um, you know, it's not saying that it needs to be just online after the pandemic because that's not realistic and that's not going to be helpful to everyone. Mm -hmm. But I think, think the combination, mm -hmm. yeah. Do you think, Rose, that this is a fundamental change or do you think that it's really aesthetic? Here's what I mean by that. More students increasingly over the last number of months, certainly I hear, are talking about things like fee, uh, reduction in fees because they say uh, the quality of the service that they're getting is not the same as it would have been if they'd been in person. Do you think that if in the future online teaching becomes more prevalent, students might start to question their fees on an ongoing basis? They might say to themselves, hold on, if I'm not using the lecture halls in the same way, if I'm not using the tutorial spaces, uh, you know, the maintenance of all of those different spaces isn't going to cost as much. Can those tuition fees still be justified? I mean, is this a fundamental change to the whole system? Or do you think it's kind of really just an aesthetic thing where we'll try to get some online there for students, that, you know, where it's more convenient for them? Well, I think that, you know, students are already questioning the services that we're getting and the fees that we're paying for those services. And I think it's rightfully so that people are questioning more and more, what is that money going towards? Especially when you, you know, you hear stories about staff on zero hour contracts and how much is actually being spent on different resources. So I think that this is really just going to be an opportunity for the university to be more transparent with students. And I feel like the more they engage with students over this, the less aesthetic it will be and the more fundamental it will be. But I don't think that there will be a fundamental, you know, shift to only online resources. But I think it is a chance for the university to engage more with students over what exactly they are offering us, basically. Mm -hmm. Final question, um, Rose, uh, your experience of online learning, have you felt that you've taken away, you know, more positives than negatives? what would be your one-line sum-up of Queen's University and online learning? Absolutely, the more positives than negatives. I feel like when it comes down to an individual level, you know, lecturers are really engaging, they're trying their best. The content is all still there. I think it's like making the best of a bad situation. That's what I found. Absolutely. Rose, listen, thank you so much for talking to us. You can find Rose's piece on the Scoop News blog uh, on our website. If you want to contribute to the news blog, you can as well. Just drop us an email at thescoop at queensradio.org. Rose, thank you very much for being with us, for giving up your time. Uh, this is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, and we're now joined by Olivia Fletcher, editor of The Scoop news site. Uh, Olivia, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, why don't we start off? Some We've talked about it quite a lot on the show. We've had a number of contributors on the show already. What is the Scoop News site and what are we trying to do with it? Yeah, so I guess to summarise in a really quick sentence, the Scoop News site is, I guess, attached to Scoop Radio Show, which you're listening to right now. 
Um, and so I guess we're kind of like the side project of it, but we also want to have like a huge part of, um, you know, student journalism, student media. Um, so we're really looking for those contributors at the moment. So please do get in touch and send us all your contributions. We're looking for pretty much anything and everything, you know, from news to culture, features, opinion, tech, sport. There's probably more things that I've forgotten, but, you know, there's loads that you can get involved with pretty much anything that you're passionate about. Send us a pitch, send us an idea, and I'll be there to get in touch with you and work with you on your idea. Liv, you do a lot of writing yourself. You've written for some really big publications across the UK. So you've written sort of as a student and then also, I suppose, you know, as a journalist in your own right. Why does student journalism matter? Why does it? Why is it right that, that not just us, but other people encourage students to get into writing and get into journalism and get into contributions of this kind? Why does student journalism matter? Yeah, I guess I think, I mean, the first point I would make is that, you know, students who work in student journalism and are student journalists end up becoming the face of journalism in the future. You know, student journalists now will become journalists of the future, will be the newsroom in the future. But I think there's something more important to say here, which is that students are hugely diverse. We're a whole population at, at Queen's, you know, there's must be 30,000 of us and there's probably more on top of that at Ulster as well. Um and students, you know, at the forefront of a lot of social movements, at the forefront of a lot of social changes. And I think we have a lot to say generally. So, again, that's why I think student journalism is just so important. Um, and again, we're independent. You get to do a lot of things you wouldn't be able to do if, you know, you're a staff writer at a publication. So we've really got everything at our fingertips, I guess. And I think that's why it's so important. I think sometimes, Liv, you know, people get put off often by the word journalism. Because what they think that journalism is, is, you know, BBC News at 10 when people are standing outside Parliament in the middle of yet another Brexit row and it's all these machinations that don't quite understand and seem to have no relevance to their lives. I think it's important, Liv, to say, isn't it, that, that that's only a tiny part of journalism. And actually quite a lot of the journalism you do is, is quite different from that. I mean, uh, give us an idea of the kind of breadth, I suppose, that we're looking for on the Scoop News site, but also the kind of breadth that journalism can offer to, you know, any student who thinks that there might be a career for them in that area. Yeah, definitely. And journalism covers so much more than just news. When you think about it, um, when we run a report on things in the world, that can be from anything to everything. You know, we've had, I think, uh, the Scoop so far, we've had stuff on OnlyFans, we've had stuff on things like Bridgerton and new Netflix series and stuff like that. Like, there's so much more to journalism than what you think. And I think we also shouldn't be afraid to call ourselves journalists, you know, even though we are students. We should also say that we're student journalists who are, and we're doing important things already, whether that's talking about lifestyle, culture, all these things are so important. And they're things that students want to hear about as well. Absolutely. I wonder if people will hopefully get in touch with us uh, and are interested in writing in a piece. No matter what the subject is, what makes a good article for you? What is good journalism for you? I mean, what are the key elements in there? I know that there's, it's all diverse and there are exceptions to every rule, but no matter what the topic is, what are the things that make an, a, an article stand out for you? Yeah. And I mean, I would say to treat this, I mean, you don't have to, like we are, like we're a nice friendly bunch of students um, and you should be afraid to email us or whatever. But I think the good thing about the scoop is that you should treat it if you do want to get in contact with us, you should treat it as if it's a national paper, you know, because if you do want to be a journalist and that's something you're passionate about, um, 
we can really mimic that experience. So we can almost pretend it's, you know, like a writer and editor relationship. So, you know, I think what I really value is that someone maybe doesn't send me a pre-written piece, uh, which shows that they don't want to, like, they don't want to work, they don't want to collaborate. So I think if you come to us with an idea first that you are passionate about and that shines through in your idea um, and you've really nailed down your argument, so you're like, okay, what's my argument summed up in a sentence? Or why me? Why should I be writing about this? For example, if you wanted to pitch to the independent day about student nurses, like they're probably only going to take you if you're a student nurse. So I think it's really about mimicking that experience um, and getting that experience as a student before you do then want to go and pitch to national publications or papers or whatever. Um, but I think the most important thing to say is like, don't worry about all those things too much. At the end of the day, we're still a student publication. Um, send us ideas that you're passionate about. Again, whether that's a Netflix series you've watched, whether it's something that's happened in the news that you think you have a really interesting and unique perspective on. All those things, I guess, kind of combined and nailed down together with a really good, unique argument would be perfect. But at the end of the day as well, um, I'm here to help writers and I want to work with writers and collaborate with them. So if you've never written before, don't worry. would love to work with writers. It's something that I really want to do. So... And, and there's more opportunities, Liv, I suppose, coming up as well. I mean, already on this show, we've had two or three people who have written articles. We've, you know, taken notice of them and they've come on this show and done a little bit of reporting on their work. Also going forward, Liv, I know that we're interested in trying to get some workshops and masterclasses going uh, with freelance journalists from uh, across the UK. So there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, let me see. You can get in touch with the Scoop news site if you're interested in contributing. Email the Scoop at queensradio.org. Uh, Liv, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, we have a huge number of pieces going up on the next week. Uh, already, I mean, I when did we launch this? About two weeks ago, we must have had, we've had dozens of articles sent in. We've had tens of people, must be, you know, 50, 60 people already contacting us in the last couple of weeks alone. So we're really getting somewhere. Thank you, Liv, for being with us. Uh, Olivia Fletcher there, editor of The Scoop news site. Um, this is The Scoop on Sunday. Do you want to write for The Scoop news site? Get in touch. Email thescoop at queensradio.org or find us on social media. Now, a recent report from the Watchdog for Fair Access, the Office for Students, has revealed that poor white teenagers in the former industrial towns, those living on the coast in England in particular, are the least likely to go to university by a considerable margin. And this comes amongst news earlier on uh, last year that half of universities have fewer than 5% of poor white students. Here to talk with me is Frank Mark Frankos, a former QUB student councillor. Uh, Mark, you're sort of from the area that we're talking about at the moment. You're from the Northeast. Uh, I suppose let's start at the very beginning, Mark. Why, why is this? Why is it that poor white students are so disproportionately underrepresented in universities across the UK? Well, it's something that you could talk about all day. Um, there's numerous factors, and I don't think any factor fully covers it. Um, you could start at investment. I think investment is a big thing uh, when you look at uh, which areas are getting investment from central government. Until recently, it was always a case of the place that it was always best value for money. 
was something that came up, which makes sense. It's logical. But the problem was that the place which was always best value for money was the southeast of England. So it got all the investment. And if you look at the figures on that, you'll see that they're disparate. They would get a lot more um uh, a lot more investment into that area than anywhere else and so other places were left behind there's always that sort of talk about the north south divide um i think these places another factor of course is that certain places have different sort of outlooks on education you've got uh, uh, sort of areas like mine where they've been predominantly industrial areas where they've been in say mining or car manufacture and thing uh, car manufacturing and things like that and so maybe there's a the, they don't quite see the value in education as much as other places um but i think one of those major factors as well is that when you look at it and you see those people who are actually the people who are least going to university it's generally white males generally uh generally white males not exclusively white males but they tend to be at the lowest bracket from those areas and i think there's a lot of it comes into that short of short term sort of thing versus the long term benefits of going to university. So a lot of people will say that there's not necessarily the long term benefit of going to university over uh, what well, they see a short term sort of outlook. So they will go and be like, oh, well, I can go off and get this job here and then maybe go to university later if I want to. Let me ask you this. Let's put some flesh on these bones. So the measure produced by the Office for Students said that um, of the, of the bottom 20% of uh, students in terms of your likelihood of going to university, of that bottom 20%, 92% of that is made up of young white teenagers on free school meals. And then if we divide that up even further, so amongst those pupils who are eligible for free school meals, uh, amongst white uh, males, your chances of going to university are as low as 13%. So that's considerably lower than elsewhere. I don't want to, Mark, get, I don't want it to turn into some sort of competition of any sort, yeah. but I wonder what your perspectives are because I read with interest um, a uh, testimony given by uh, Matthew Goodwin, Professor of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent, who told yes. the Education Committee the following. He said that toxic masculinity and white privilege could, quote, become part of the problem as we send yet another signal to these communities that they are the problem. I don't want to get into a kind of competition between these different things, Mark, but I wonder in general, do you think that part of the problem is that advocating on behalf of white working class people isn't terribly fashionable? Is that something that you would have any truck with? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's it, it it's something that I think is it, we've seen throughout our politics just as a whole. I think I think people in these sort of areas are often forgotten about. Um, that sort of that's whole metropolitan sort of versus everyone else sort of sort of divide that goes on. And yeah, it's it's not it's not it's not popular to 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 advocate on that. But if you look at the the core numbers, like you say, potentially as low as your chances might be as low as thirteen percent to get to university when you compare it to other demographics who you hear a lot more about and we hear a lot more about it in the likes of uh, around the student movement especially you hear a lot of talk around the black attainment gap and there is problems there without a doubt um, when you look at the overall big picture but if you look at those people who are affected the most those people right at the bottom essentially of society trying to trample on top of them those people right at the bottom the people who have the the least amount of income those people who are on free school meals when you compare those numbers um like we've seen um 26% of people on free school meals are going to uh, university 
as a whole, but uh, when you take it down to uh, p- white pupils, that's only 16%. But then when you look at sort of uh, people from um, black uh, African families, you can see that number dramatically rises to 59%. Um, and you've got to ask, why is that the case in those families and not the case in, in those white families? And there's lots of factors to that. I, 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 I definitely say there's a lot of people who maybe want to see the... Uh, the social mobility aspects and maybe they want to work to get out of where they're coming from more so but we've got to look at why is that the case why are certain areas looking to maybe move out of that more so than others and i think a lot of that almost is it to do with is it to do you talked about short-termism there uh, mark is it to do with kind of uh, ambition i mean we talk a lot about north-south divisions in england is it about uh, feeling as if um, uh, this is your community and this is the way your father and your mother live and this is the way your grandfather and grandfather lived and this is this is what life is like for you if you are a, a working class kid from um, uh, you know from from the north of England perhaps whereas in other communities particularly metropolitan communities there's a spirit of social mobility where mothers and fathers are really encouraging their children to go further and to push higher is it a, is it about ambition is that something that you get the sense coming from from these kind of communities. I think that definitely could be the case. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think a lot of it stems down to people who maybe came here and have struggled immensely and then they want to and then they want to see their kids do better. You can see them on certain groups and there's some stereotyping that you can always see around certain when you look at certain scenes from the like the Asian uh, sort of Indian sort of subcontinent, you see people they always drive their kids to try and go to university. They want everyone to be an engineer or a doctor. And a lot of it is societal in that in that sense. Um but yeah, I think when you look to, towards the north and things like that, there's coming from very different areas, very industrial areas that have kind of that they've sort of fallen off, um, and maybe there just hasn't been that sort of mentality around university. Um, and, and I think a lot of that is that short, and there is that short-term element of it. It's like, oh, you can go off and work here, and you can be earning more than your 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 friends who go off to university, and that is true. But in the long term, that's not the case. And I think there's an issue potentially maybe from a sociological point around boys, especially in that. I think boys are more swayed probably by that element of short, short-term short money, being able to go out. And I don't, I don't want to make just big, wide sort of generalizations, but, oh, you can earn the money and then you can go down the pub or you can go and buy yourself a nice car or something. Um, it's a lot more short term than I think. I think girls are maybe a little bit more long term in their approach. And, uh, okay, well, and, and I suppose there'll be all sorts of studies into that directly. Though I wonder, you and I are both university students. Are we looking at this all wrong? Are we taking university, reaching for university, trying to uh, go to university as being a benchmark for some sort of achievement in life when actually it doesn't need to be and university isn't for everyone and we shouldn't be in a position where going or not going to university is the metric by which we measure success. Is that the wrong way of going about this? Yeah, I think I think there's definitely there's definitely a point there. Um, I think we do measure university as being the be all and end all. I think schools maybe put too much of an emphasis on going to university. And I mean, we can see it in society as a whole. I mean, metrics now show that over 50% of people are going to university. And you can see that and that's now reflected in, in the jobs and the uh, um, the advertisements are now being put out. That so many jobs that wouldn't previously have needed it are now putting down university degrees. And is that right or not? And I would always argue that there's a great place and that people, that people should have the opportunity to go to university. The question is whether people need to. Um, it gives you great skills, but I think maybe we're going down a path where 
we're trying to push so many people to go to university and then those people who don't want to go are kind of being left behind when in reality university isn't necessarily needed for everything and so it's creating this artificial gap um for those who don't go because there's so many people still going if that makes sense so those people who don't go uh, have a have a disadvantage but then you got so many people going to university that actually the value of university doesn't matter so much there's uh, there's arguments now around whether kind of a master's is almost now the the new equivalent of a degree in terms of that distinction because when you look back to a generation or two back maybe 20% of people were going to university now it's literally 50% and so there's serious, serious issues there. So that we've now got loads of people who do go to university, brilliant for them. They now they now can get onto the ladder and get onto the ladder at the same point that people a, a generation ago would have been going in at. But those people who haven't got to university are now even further behind. And so there's there's some serious, serious issues and there's some serious discussions that need to be made around whether that whole 50% target, which it was a target, whether that was needed or not. Um, and because of that, there's obviously the funding implications as well. Now we're all laden down with student loans, which never used to be the case. And that's a whole conversation that needs to be had. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing that people are going to university, but maybe we need to look at it a little bit more. Mark, we're going to have to leave it there. There's so much to talk about here, and we'll have to have you back to continue the conversation. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark Frankel's there, a former student councillor at QUB. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, I'm joined now by Hannah Ireland. Hannah is a postgraduate student studying environmental engineering at Queen's University. Earlier this week, heating has changed during lockdown. Uh, we'll be putting the article back up on our social media right now. Hannah, thank you so much for being with us. Um, I guess a place to start and where you started in the article as well is set the scene for us. How important is dating when you're at university? Uh, I mean, what's the context here? So I think if I had to give a word for dating at university, I'd say it's probably more inevitable than important. Um, where I spoke to students, I found that they didn't say it was important as such, but that it was something that happened really naturally, where there was such an intense like, student life um, and like just being way more sociable than you would usually be. I think just where there's so many people coming from different areas, all meeting at the same time, you know, all of them are like around the same age studying for a degree. It's just something that happens really naturally. So I think, I mean, if you were to look at it, at why it's important, when I spoke to a lot more of my long-term relationship students, ones who'd been together from uni for a while, they did say that it gave them some sort of support, someone that was do, doing the same thing as them. And so having a relationship at uni did really help to have someone there to help you through all of the uni struggles. But if I had to look for a word, it would have to be inevitable and natural. And in terms of in terms of the long term, uh, Hannah, I mean, is there uh, are there a number of students? Is there a stat? Is there I mean, how many students find somebody at university who they end up? Oh, it's such a cliche, isn't it? Finding the one that they go on to spend the rest of their life with, or whatever it is. I mean, or, or, or really, is university a place where people date, and then after university is when you find yourself in the serious relationships? Well, I think doing my research, I found twenty percent apparently do find the love of their life at university. So quite a high number I'd say um but you know like all relationships I imagine it's probably quite difficult finding someone that you need and then leaving and growing as a person um but I think dating is something that happens a lot at university you do and a lot of people I know and in the interview they did you know have at least one relationship or at least something like it from university 
Mm -hmm. And you spoke to a bunch of different students for the article, Hannah. Talk us through mm -hmm. what they told you, because there's a real spectrum of experiences here, right? Yeah, there's a bit of a contrast between like people I interviewed. Um, so I think the main gist I got from everyone was that from this pandemic, you have to put more effort in than you usually would. And that has led to the scales, like people from one end saying, you know, this is not worth it. It's not worth the effort. I'd rather stay single at the moment. And then also people who were in relationships before and now saying, you know, their relationship didn't work out. It broke down in the pandemic because they didn't want to continue. Um, and the other side, there were people who said their relationship was stronger. So students I interviewed who'd met in university, they said that they wanted to move in together now after uni, after the lockdown, um, as soon as possible, basically. Mm. So well, there's two ends of the scales. You know, we've seen people who are saying they don't, they don't want a relationship. It didn't work out for them them and they've seen these issues because of the pandemic but they've had time by themselves to think about what they want and we've seen people in relationships now students who have met a university had to go through this and realize it's made them stronger and that they want to move in together as soon as possible yeah so it's not a it's not a kind of one size fits all thing what about dating apps hannah because I, you know you sort of anecdotally get the sense that more people are, find themselves on dating apps things like tinder bumble hinge whatever it is did you get the sense, either anecdotally or, or through the interviews you were doing, that dating apps were even more commonplace than they were before the pandemic? Well, when I interviewed single students, I did ask, it came up, you know, do you use dating apps? Or even people who've got into recent relationships, how did that happen? And I did find dating apps were coming up more frequently, um, especially Hinge. I found a lot of people saying they used it more often. Um, I wasn't actually aware of Hinge before the lockdown, but it seems to be a lot more popular um, because it was brought up in a lot of my interviews. Well, why is that? Do you have any idea where, because Tinder was the big kind of the dating juggernaut. That's the meme, that's the joke. Everyone talks about Tinder. What's, what's the difference? Well, when I asked people what they thought of Tinder, I, you know, the reviews I was getting was... It's just for validation. It's more self-esteem, a bit like I'm bored. No one was really using it seriously. And then those I spoke to who had maybe had a few experiences, serious ones through dating apps, Hinge came up. Um, and then when I asked why, they said, you have to put more effort into your profile. You have to make more of an effort when you um, match with someone. So like you have to start a conversation, basically. It just requires more effort than you would use in Tinder. And I think it is slightly more niche in the sense that it has got a reputation that people are looking for a relationship on there. So most people who download Hinge are looking for the same thing, whereas Tinder is kind of, when I asked people, I asked a few people who just, um, some students who had just broken up and they did download Tinder quite quickly after the relationship. They weren't looking for anything serious. Although the ones that downloaded Hinge were the ones looking for serious things. So obviously if you have, way more people on Hinge looking for something serious is going to have a higher success rate. That's so, true. Um, and what about then, if we take all dating apps, Hannah? I mean, what are the major differences, do you think, in terms of actually getting to know somebody, uh, starting off a relationship between Zoom, virtual, online, on the app, and the kind of in-person experience, meeting somebody for coffee, meeting somebody for a drink, that might have been more commonplace before the pandemic, anyway? I think that dating apps they've always been around but they are more common and i think that they are being used more meaningfully um, because that social environment that people would usually have used for dates has been taken away so you know yeah when i interviewed um a few students asked them if they were single like how they're meeting people and they did say that they probably wouldn't be using dating apps as much 
if they weren't in the pandemic and it is something that has changed because of it. So it is due to this that they have, we have seen more students using it, but I don't think it's mouth choice. I think it's because it's the only way that they can meet someone. Mm-hmm. Well then, I, I suppose uh, as we finish up, Hannah, I'm wondering, looking to the future, do you think that there are elements of lockdown dating that will be uh, carried forward, that will be taken on? I mean, there are, are, are there things to do with either dating apps or meeting online that are actually more convenient and people prefer them and we might start to see an ever so slightly blended approach to dating, uh, if you want to call it that, when this pandemic's over with? Is it, will anything remain? I think we'll probably see more um, virtual calls, video calls, definitely incorporated into relationships just because they have had to, to be incorporated to maintain the effort. And so I think that was something that's something that will probably stay and be included into the social interaction because it does mean if you are, you know, long distance or if you have to, you can't really see each other, you know, it, it'll be normal to just say, well, we'll FaceTime because we've done that before anyway. It's not really a big deal. Um, but I don't think the social aspect of dating will change. I think most students will want to get back out there as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. What about final advice, Hannah? You've spoken to a bunch of students dating in lockdown. If anybody's Mm -hmm. listening to this thinking, oh, it's not going well for me, what's what's your advice that you picked up? Advice from students in relationships. They said, just make sure you maintain the same amount of effort that you would do if you were seeing each other in person, um, making quality time for each other. And if you get the chance to go on a walk, you get the chance to have that hour phone call after work or something like that, make sure that you do it. Okay, Hannah, thank you so much for talking to us. Hannah Ireland there uh, contributing to the Scoop News blog. You can write a piece for the Scoop News blog as well if you want to email us at uh, thescoop at queensradio.org. Thank you so much, Hannah. This is The Scoop on Sunday. We are joined now by Claudia Savage, host of The Trendy Scoop, who is with us uh, at the car park of a petrol station in her Coral Fiat 500. Uh, Claudia, you're on brand even when you're joining us remotely. Um, let's talk about some of the new TV releases then. What have you got your eye on? Yes, well, one of the things that came out this week was Disenchantment Season 2. So Disenchantment was created by Matt Groening, the creators of The Simpsons. So it's a good one for anyone that likes a bit of adult animation. Like if anyone's a fan of Big Mouth or stuff like that, you would like it. And that's the new season that's out of it. But it, it's not mind blowing. So it's not one that's going to, it's not going to change your life. Like, but it's a good one to put on. And again, it's good that there's multiple seasons because then you can see what the crack is with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, season thing, two of Bonding. Yes, Bonding. I didn't see it ever promoted on Netflix before, but the fact that the season two's come out is all over it. And Bonding is a show about a New York grad student called Tiff who enlists the help of her gay best friend uh, to help her with her nightly business, which is being a dominatrix. So uh, it's a bit of a dark comedy and maybe not one for all the family. I'm not going to judge. Maybe you have a very sex positive family and you watch shows like that. But uh, it seems to be very entertaining and it's a good one to look out for. Okay. We'll have to keep an eye out for that one. Season two of Bonding. What else is on Netflix then, Claudia? Uh, one that's on iPlayer that's coming out now is the new season of Drag Race UK. So RuPaul's Drag Race, the cultural phenomenon, it is well known now that it hasn't been off TV for about three years. It's always on. The, the American one is also on, but the UK one is 
gaining a lot of traction now. I think a lot of people are saying that it's starting to get better than the American one. So featuring all queens from the UK. Last season, Northern Ireland's Blue Hydrangea was on it. There's no queens from Northern Ireland on this year, but uh, Scottish queens, English queens, and really running entertaining. So there's a new episode of that out every week on BBC iPlayer. Okay, I will have to watch that as well. And Parks and Rec. Yes, for anyone, I know uh, I fall into the trap as well. Anyone that watches The Office, you, you just want to keep watching it over and over and over again. And it's been put on Netflix recently, but Parks and Recreation is going to be coming on in the next month. So made by the creators of The Office and another good bingeable one, given that we're all spending a lot of time inside these days. Fantastic. All right, let's talk about music then, Claudia. What have you got your eye on? So anyone who spends too much time on TikTok like me instead of doing things productive with their lives uh, will be familiar with Ash Nico. Her songs Daisy and uh, Stupid are all over TikTok. She has a new album out. So it's good. Her music is very, very reverent and very upbeat. So it's a really fun album. Fab. Okay. What else have you got your eye on then? Uh, another album that is out this week is Beach Bunny. So they've released an EP called Blame Game. They haven't had music out since but 2018. So there's only four songs on it. But if anyone, if there's any girls out there that are looking at any additions to the I Hate Men playlist, very feminist, uh, very in your face. But again, another one that's really fun. And yeah, good one to look out for. And then a One Direction appearance on your list as well, with, a, I think, a very aptly named album title. Yes, uh, Zayn Malik has a new album out called Nobody Is Listening. I don't see how he didn't see that joke coming. And frankly, he was right. Very middling reviews of that album. And he hasn't, his previous solo albums, his first one, he had a huge single with Pillow Talk, which mm. I think was more popular just because of the fact that it was his single after leaving One Direction. Most of his solo music since then, and including his new album, hasn't received amazing reviews. So maybe he should have thought of that for he destroyed my own, sitting here my Fiat 500 talking about One Direction, uh, or he destroyed my life and many other people's lives by leaving One Direction. It's been a mixed bag for the ex-One Direction stars. I mean, uh, who's who's done the best? Who's done the worst? Like, if it's, uh, I'll just because I, I know you love One Direction so much, you you have to sitting in a Fiat 500, like you say. Obviously, I mean, it's it, an, it, it, what's it's the actual um, listing. How many years ago now did they break? Did they break up? Well, or take Thomas, a temporary I don't like, hiatus. I don't like the word break up. Yes, it's it's okay. temporary hiatus that they've been on since 2016. So um, that's what but, that's four four years. So four year review down the line. What's your impressions of where the how many of them are there? Five, four of them are five. Uh, well, Harry Styles and Niall Horn are definitely, I would say, the big two. Their careers have really, really taken off. Their solo careers. And of course, Harry Styles is also, has also branched into acting. So he's been in Dunkirk and his movie with Florence Pugh, Don't Worry Darling, is set to come out next year. And Niall Horan has big solo music as well. Liam Payne is popular, but he does get roasted a lot for being the way that he is. And Zayn has sort of faded into obscurity. He does. He's more. He's actually more well known now for being Gigi Hadid's boyfriend than being famous in his own right which is nice right. to say from a feminist perspective fantastic right well that took us off track ever so slightly to reviews of One Direction there's a 40 minute podcast in there somewhere uh, Trendy that Scoop that was your fault for getting me started on that thank you very much no not a problem I'll take the blame for that one uh, Claudia Trendy Scoop coming out this week what can people look forward to on next week's show we have Northern Irish band called The Love Buzz so they have a new song out called Sainsbury's and we'll see if they're going to release a supermarket themed album 
who knows but we'll be talking to them about their new music and about what can expect to see from them and then we'll have our usual roundups with Emma Walton and Neve Bell on TV and Kirsty King will be talking to us about music as well Fantastic. Listen, Claudia, thank you so much for being with us. We'll let you get back to work um, and we'll have to have you back again next week. You can listen to The Trendy Scoop comes out every Tuesday afternoon in all of your usual podcast places. Claudia Savage, thank you so much for being with us. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, let's jump across the Atlantic now and join Max Cohen, editor of The Daily Pennsylvanian. Max, it feels like an age since you were last with us. A hell of a lot has happened uh, since, I think it was probably November when we last had a conversation. Let's run through it very quickly. The, the major standout thing in that time is what uh, are now called the Capitol Riots. Uh, we watched that certainly from this side of the Atlantic with a certain uh, you know, amount of incredulity as to what was happening. When you switched on the TV screen or watched it on your phone, what was running through your head? Yeah, it was, it was terrifying. Uh, to be clear, that that's something where you know I, I'm from around the Washington D.C. you know area, and the, the U.S. Capitol. I've been there multiple times as a tourist. I've been there once as a journalist, and it's the the beacon of American democracy. It's such a symbolic place, and to see it defiled by you know white supremacists, insurrectionists trying to stop the peaceful transition of power was was horrifying uh, from my standpoint. And the even more horrifying thing, uh, Thomas, is that the rioters were actually quite close to doing damage to the lawmakers. Of course, there was one uh, police officer tragically killed by the rioters, uh, so a senseless death out of that. A number of the rioters died themselves, but they were you know, probably within minutes of actually breaching the United States Senate chamber. And I'm, one I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, Max, that will, yeah, it's, that'll all come out in the wash, I'm sure, at some stage, exactly why it was that there was... Uh, what appeared to be such lack security. I, I wonder though what your thoughts are. I'm reading in front of me a poll um, uh, from uh, early January. 45% of Republicans approve of the Capitol riots. I wonder what it says uh, about where America is at the moment, that such a, you know, nearly half of all Republican voters supported what you have just said uh, as being, you know, a, a sort of a, disgraceful and, and and laying siege to the heart of American democracy. How is it that America is now so divided that 45% of one of the major parties, one of the world's oldest political parties, supported what we were seeing on our screens that day? Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit surprised uh, by that number. I'm not sure if I see numbers that high within the party, but I think I would caution to say that uh, even if that, that is correct, it's 45% of probably 30, I'd say 30% of Americans identify as Republicans. So Listen, I don't know if that makes it better. I think it's still tragic that any portion of Americans agree with it, but I wouldn't, it's not as large as that perhaps might seem. It's not like it's 50-50 Americans or Democrats or Republicans. Um, but to answer your question, I think, you know, they have been fed lies by the, pre- the former president of the United States and by the media atmosphere in which it's consumed in. And, and, and that's just a fact in the sense that ever since the election in November, um, Donald Trump has said it was stolen. And you essentially had the Republican Party apparatus backing that up or really refusing to push back on that. Um, so when you hear from the leaders, I think I, I really believe in kind of the elite theory in politics in which the party elites, the leaders, the representatives, the president, if they say something, uh, the rank and file members of that party will follow. And will say they're taking their cues from those leaders. And I think that shows you that when people in power are saying something, it has a consequence. And the electorate, you know, will, will go with that. And it, mm-hmm. just lasting in a certain member of those people who might support the riots won't necessarily trust 
you know, mainstream news outlets. And they'll be getting their news from places like you know, One American News or Newsmax. But, well, and let me ask you a point on, on exactly that, Max, because mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm, it's a YouGov poll I was reading from there, and actually it says 2% of Democrats agreed with their actions. So quite who those 2% of Democrats are, I don't know. But I, I wonder, you've hit a point there on the media that I find quite interesting. And I haven't written this down because you've genuinely just piqued my interest here. Uh, what is the role of the media in all of this? Because I sometimes find this quite difficult, if I'm honest. Uh, where do you, where if you are an impartial broadcaster, and you know your attempt uh, as a journalist is to allow different sides to, to voice their opinions, you can call out facts and that kind of you know, and and lies and false claims and that kind of stuff. How do you think the media has performed in all of this? Because I, I will say that during the election, I switched on a bit of Fox News because I wanted to see what it was like, and I switched on a bit of CNN. And I will be honest and say that in some ways the two are as bad as each other. Um, you know, when it comes to almost partisan support for one side or the other. How, what's your interpretation of how the media has performed in America over the last number of months? And do they have a responsibility in, in, in what we've seen? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think part of what you know, the world might see as American news is definitely colored by cable news. You know, the two networks you just mentioned, Fox and CNN, I tend to see their mission more as entertainment uh, than news gathering. And, and that's why I really prefer to, you know, read newspapers, online outlets. I, I think those news outlets do a much better job of avoiding kind of the partisan bickering and just getting you the facts. Because what I don't love about places like CNN and Fox is that sometimes you have the opinion hosts, right? You know, the Sean Hannity's or, I mean, I, I, CNN is, is not nearly as bad as Fox in terms of misinformation, but you do have hosts who take a partisan lens. I'd say Anderson Cooper, you know, Don Lemon, they they definitely, it's not just straight news, they add their own opinion. Um, and you don't necessarily have that in the same sense with mainstream, you know, newspaper reporters. Uh, something, I think that's an issue, but it's also, you know, it's, it's TV and television. We don't necessarily have, you know, the BBC like you have in the UK, which is, like, you have PBS that's not as widespread. Um, so when people are getting their news from more of an entertainment lens, then I think what, what sells is, you know, as you mentioned, partisanship and not necessarily just, just the facts. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about QAnon. Uh, Max, for those people who don't know what it is, talk to us about what QAnon is and talk to us about how pervasive this now is in American culture. Yeah, it's it's scary. Um, it's a conspiracy theory, uh, very popular among the uh, the Trump fringes. And it, it essentially says that, you know, they're Democrats, they're globalist elites that are essentially this cabal who are all pedophiles, uh, Satan worshiping. It's, it's an insidious conspiracy theory, a lot of tones of you know, anti-Semitism, um, just hatred throughout all of it, honestly. And Trump has never expressed support for it directly, but he's at his rallies. You go to a Trump rally and you see QAnon flags, you see his supporters there. So it's very much kind of tacit approval. I mean, he's never really forcefully condemned it uh, in the ways I think people said is necessary. I wonder, though, Max, again, this is there's so many counterintuitive parts of, of the story of the last number of years. But I mean, the, the people who believe these QAnon conspiracy theories are um, adults. They are uh, they pay their taxes. They have jobs. They drive cars. They live lives. They have children. They send them to school. How can it be that they are so willing to buy into what? To many of the rest of us, it appears to be uh, something you know out of some sort of horror story, uh, utterly fictitious. What 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 sort of vacuum is here that's allowing people to buy into these kind of conspiracy theories? And how yeah, does a president like Biden 
move in. And he talks a lot about unifying. But as, as I suppose it's been said many times on that side of the Atlantic, you know, unifying is about doing things rather than just saying, hey, let's unify. Uh, what do you what do you put in the space that QAnon has occupied up until now? It's very difficult. As you mentioned, these, these citizens might just seem like normal citizens. I think the main connector of them is that they're looking for some sense of community. Um, to that, from my reading of the situation, QAnon is as much about the conspiracy as it is about the other people who also believe in it. And you find these online message boards, these chat boards, where everyone else seems to believe the same thing you do. And I actually read this interesting Atlantic piece over the summer, which almost classified the QAnon conspiracy theory as a type of religion, a type of cult in a way. You know, people find joy by banding around with others who believe the same thing, even if it is, as you mentioned, completely fictitious and very dangerous. And one other thing I'd say is social media has a big role to play. I think uh, the way that Facebook algorithms promote these things, I think they've since tried to purge uh, their pages of any QAnon content, but the damage has already been done and you're recommended to join these groups and your posts are boosted and you find yourself, you know, together with people, you know, who might be millions of miles away, but occupy that same keyboard and can boost your beliefs. Um, and you become very isolated, I think, from the outside world when you're a true Q believer. Um, and it kind of enforces you know, the conspiracy theory. You talked about social media there. Social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, among others, came into uh, a distinct level of focus towards the end of the Trump presidency as he and his tweets were removed either temporarily or permanently from a number of those platforms. Has the relationship, do you think, between the big social media giants and politics changed forever now? Is the genie out of the bottle that there needs to be regulation, doesn't need to be regulation? How do people now view these social media giants in the political sphere? Yeah, I think throughout the Trump presidency, and I think probably a few years before that, there were always charges on the right of you know Facebook, Twitter being anti-conservative, which I don't necessarily think were borne out by the evidence, but there are always claims. And I think those have taken on, you know, new life after, you know, Twitter and Facebook actually banned Trump from the platforms. It's become very partisan. And I think, you know, you saw people trying to move to different other platforms like Parler in response to Twitter and Facebook banning Trump. And then Parler itself was shut down for a while. So you're definitely seeing this play out on the right. I think almost in the same way that, that um, Republicans uh, sought to move away from the mainstream news outlets. I think they're also trying to move away from the mainstream social media outlets in a way to find one that is more, you know, Trump-friendly or more, you know, pro-free speech, no matter what its consequences are. But I mean, do, I suppose, are more people questioning, Max, whether these big social media companies, ha I mean, have too much power or don't have enough power? Do you think that their role has changed as a result, even over the last number of months? I mean, has something fundamentally changed in how they operate and how they're going to be viewed? Or do you think really it's just, you know, at the next step in an ever-evolving story of social media? I know, I think it's accurate uh, what, what you mentioned, that there has been a shift. I think the shift was January 6th, as we talked about earlier. Once there was that insurrection, you know, a mob storming the, t the Capitol and killing people, and you can argue egged on by the president, on these social media platforms, that is when I think the relationship shifted because the social media companies will say, well, now we had a credible threat of violence that react, that resulted in death that was on our platform and we can't stand for that. And you have had people arguing, uh, you know, well, Trump has incited violence in the past, you could say, why now? But I think that the Capitol riots were definitely a turning point. Um, and, and to ban the sitting president, even though he was a lame duck president, he still had two weeks left in his term, that is a massive, massive um, mm -hmm. step by the social media companies. And it, it went beyond just adding a warning. 
you know, all this misinformation to actually deplatform the president of the United States. I think you're right. It ushered in a new level of scrutiny, a new level of responsibility for these companies. Let me ask you this, Max, because um, we could talk about this, to be honest, all day, and I'd love to because there's so much here. You are a young journalist. You will no doubt be a very successful journalist of that, I am sure. What, is, what, what is the role of, of, of journalists? What is the role of the media in situations like this? Because uh, the reason I ask this, I think, Max, is because even in the, in, in the UK, we find this more and more partially because of Brexit. Normally, broadcasters are used to being in a situation where they say, here's the debate, here's one side, here's the other side, let's have the debate and let's let people decide. Whereas when you look at something like capital riots, when you look at some of the things that uh, particularly, I think, in fairness, you know, uh, Republicans have been saying over the last while, I pride myself or try to on being as impartial a broadcaster as I possibly can. It's very difficult to toe that line uh, where you're trying to be fair and balanced without somehow being complicit in something which appears to be wrong. I'm not sure if that makes any sense. What is your perspective on the role of journalists in a time when politics seems out of control? I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of the issues a lot of people are facing. Um, the the way I always treat it is I'm with you. You know, you have to be impartial. There's absolutely no support of either side or any side honestly you're there to tell the story that's the role of journalists you're not there to advocate for anything but what you are there to do is actually advocate for the truth and to me the truth if you advocate for the truth and you tell what actually happened and what's true and what's misinformation you'll be okay so i think you know you, you do have a major political party in the republican party who is you know spouting election misinformation and, and the leader of that party president trump was doing that is it, is it right just to shut it down and ignore it? No, you have to tell your readers, your viewers, the Republicans are saying this. This is not true. And if the Democrats say something false, say the Democrats are saying this, it's not true. But in any story you write or any you know, report you give, I think you have to just be anchored in the truth. And that's the easiest thing for me is like, you say what's true, what's false, and you might quote somebody who's saying something that's wrong. And it's on you as a journalist to say, what was just said was wrong and give the actual facts. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a difficult situation to be in for sure because as you mentioned, the stakes seem higher than ever, but if you stay anchored on the truth and holding those in power accountable, I don't think you can go wrong. Let me ask you a final question, Max, um, which is uh, uh, Joe Biden is now in uh, the White House uh, a couple of weeks now. He has talked a lot about unifying America. Uh, my question is uh, over 70 million people voted for Donald Trump. Some of them fall under the categories that we've talked about, QAnon, support for capital riots, all, all of these things. How does a president like Joe Biden achieve what he claims to be his principal aim, which is unifying? Because, you know, unifying is about more than just shouting at people saying, you know, you should unify. There seems to be in there somewhere some element of uh, compromise is required for unification. Is it not? And I'm not sure if I get the sense, Max, that the USA or indeed the Democrats are in the mood for compromise right now. It's very accurate. Yeah, it, it was a tough campaign promise to deliver. And I think I know this, you know, very well. I study political polarization um, here at Penn, and I'm well aware of how divided this country is in terms of its partisan uh, lines. So I don't think Biden was under any illusions it would be difficult to, quote, unquote, unify the country. There will always be people, I'd say probably millions of people, who believe he's an illegitimate president, falsely, but that's what they've been told. So I think through rhetoric, it's very difficult. As you mentioned, it's very difficult to unify solely through rhetoric. I think what the Biden administration has said it will do 
is try to take action, you know, pass legislation. He's already used a lot of executive orders to try to roll back some of the Trump um, positions. But I think the best way, you know, any politics can unify is through passing signature legislation and making a difference in people's lives. I think first and foremost, the administration probably will identify the vaccine rollout and the pandemic response. Um, if this country can get back to normal, that would be better for unifying than any speech um, Biden can give. Yeah. Max, thank you very much for joining us. I know I've kept you on longer than I said I would, but I mean, there are so many interesting areas to look at here and we will have to make sure that we have you back again uh, to talk about the ever-evolving story of the United States. Uh, Max Cohen there, editor of The Daily Pennsylvanian, joining us from uh, the United States. Max, thank you very much. This is The Scoop on Sunday. With us now on the show is Jason Bunting, SU Education Officer. Jason, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. No problem. Jason, I suppose there's a couple of things we can talk about. We last had you on the show towards the end of last term. Since then, Jason, I, I get the sense anyway that there is more conversation than before about something that you're very passionate about and you've been talking about quite a lot, which is uh, refunding to a certain extent uh, tuition fees that students have paid. I think I'm hearing more students talk about this than before. And there's definitely a debate to be had here. Uh, where are you standing at the moment on this issue? Should students still be paying the same amount uh, that they have paid in previous years for their tuition this year in the middle of a pandemic when we consider all the limitations that are being put on their education? Should they be paying the same amount of money? No, and that's notwithstanding the fact that they should never be paying for their education and that they shouldn't be charged for going to university. Um, but any student would tell you that this is a lessened student experience um, and they're being charged the same amount as as prior to when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, um, hit the university. Um, it's, it's obscene um, that students are still paying the same amount and, and it's unjustifiable. Um, and that's why the Students' Union has a very strong line and very proactive campaigning around the issue. Let me ask you this then. I mean, what is it that... Uh, it's causing, I mean, if you reduce fees, I mean, it's, it seems to me the lecturers, Jason, are still uh, working hard. In many cases, these same lecturers are going to have to uh, apply their skills in different ways and in ways that are going to be challenging to them, uh, getting to grips with technology, uh, managing to engage your students online. These are all new to a lot of lecturers. It seems to me that there's still the same amount of money being need to be spent on students because they will still need to be taught in the same way. Why on earth? Um, should those lecturers be put in a position where um, they, uh, the, the students are paying less when the service being provided to students is the same in terms of their education? Well, I think you've raised a really good point there, which is around the efforts that students um, and staff have both invested this year and the extraordinary unprecedented efforts that lecturers and, and um, professional services staff as well have invested in this year. Like They really have gone, um, gone the extra mile in trying to make sure that this year is the best student experience that it can be um, within the confines of, um, of the restrictions and of the current situation. Um, but you ask around, um, you ask really a question that goes fundamental to the way we see education, which is who should be 
burying the burden of funding the education and funding the um, you know the paychecks and funding the money that goes into universities um, and we argue that it actually should be the government that is paying that money um, and that it shouldn't be the students who are burdened with debt for paying that or treated like like customers um, and the last point you made around the service they are still receiving their education but it is a different and I would argue lessened service and lessened experience. Um, and I think that's that's really plain to say for, for anybody. Well, Jason, we, we've had this conversation before and, you know, the day that, students unions stop advocating in favor of free tuition fees you know it's the day that hell itself freezes over it's almost your raison d'etre of being a student union that you're against tuition fees let's talk about a reduction then this year so say for example uh, and i want to talk about how you would go about this in a second who, who pays for this refund is it the government that pays for the refund is it the university that pays for the refund that's question one and question two why should students who represent what three percent of the overall population see that the governments pay them back, bail them out some of their loans, um, when hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in this country have had their businesses decimated, they've had their lives destroyed, they've probably lost family members, their lives will never be the same again. Why is it that students who, if you attend university, you are probably, uh, well, statistically, you know, you're, uh, you're not at the very bottom of the ladder in society. Why is it that they should be the ones who get a refund from the government um, when there's limited money to go rounds and hundreds of other thousands of other people are, are perhaps in more need? Um, so on the first question, it should be the government who pays. Um, we don't think universities should burden um, or should sorry, be forced to um, kind of find the money um, when they aren't sufficiently funded by the government to begin with. And um, the UK continually under, under invests in its public universities. And um, so it should be the government who, who funds the, the refund and likes the tuition fee debt as well for those who have paid through loans. Um, I suppose you've raised a brilliant point around the financial support that almost every other sector of society has had in the last 12 months. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen that students haven't been afforded the same financial support that almost every other um, section of society, whether it's businesses or employers or um, employees through furlough, have, have been given. Um, so students have been almost uniquely impacted by this. The second point that I would make um, in relation to the impact on other sections of society is that it's really important to remember that students don't exist in a bubble. The same the same people that you're talking to and um, you're talking about in terms of people who've lost their jobs and um, people who've been impacted hugely financially, those are students as well. And students are sitting in a situation right now where they've maybe lost their jobs as well. You know, they've maybe been really heavily impacted um, by personal loss or emotional stress or mental well-being and um, difficulties as a result of the pandemic. Um, and I suppose the third point is you mentioned limited means and I think um, a couple of years ago we heard a lot from the government around uh, magic money trees and it's clear that in the last year they found that magic money tree because they seem to be able to be spending huge amounts of financial capital on everyone in society um, and it's clear that it was a political choice all along to underinvest in our society and it continues to be a political choice and a political ideology to uh, expect the students to bear the burden for paying for education when it should be treated just like healthcare as public good, as a human right, 
um, and something that we yeah, you, so I want to talk about practicalities in a second. I suppose some people listening to this might say, well, the difference between now and a few years ago is, for example, is interest rates at rock bottom. And they would say that over the next 10 years or so, it will be young people who will have to repay all of the money that this government has borrowed and face the brunt of uh, the the economic devastation left in this pandemic's wake. Uh, let's talk about practicalities then. Again, Jason, you and I have been here before. What on earth can you uh, in the QUBSU do, even if you had unanimous support, which I'm sure you have close to unanimous support amongst uh, student population in general, how on earth are you going to go about trying to get a refund from the government? Yeah, and it's a great question because we can't do it alone. Um, Queen's Students Union cannot unilaterally get this commitment from the government, um, and that's the exact reason why um, you know we believe that Students United across the country are able to um, deliver wins for students through collective action. And um, so right now we are obviously lobbying the government directly and lobbying um, the economy minister in, um, in Northern Ireland and lobbying the Westminster government. Um, but you're absolutely right that it's only by working with NUSUSI, with the National Union of Students, um, that we're going to be able to have a political win here. Um, and the other thing that we have to mention as well is that there has been a campaign that has been set up now um, across the water um, called Students United Against Fees as well, and Queen's Students Union is playing its role in that. Um, so we're working with so it's not, Jason, it's, it's not going to work, is it? You're not going to get a refund from the government for student tuition fees. Well, I think that's the, the same kind of cynicism that would have said that a few years ago we wouldn't have got half of the economic packages that we've seen in the last year. The fact is that it is a political choice to continue to refuse this and um, we need to stop buying into the government's narrative that they either don't have enough money to do this um, or that they have no choice but not to do it. They, they can choose to do this. Um, and we've seen, like we, you know, if we just think of even the the win that was just delivered through student action for nurses, and um, you know, a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, maybe there would have been folks saying we don't have enough money to do that. Um, so I think I mean, and those are two very different things in terms of the amount of money, Jason, aren't they? Well, they're both political choices, and I think it just shows that it shows the collective strength of students. It shows how. When students act, act collectively, um, you know, we can win for students. Um, but you're absolutely right that we can't do it alone. Um, and we need every student in Queen's to be behind us. I suppose some people, Jason, might also say, actually, uh, students are in a, a, a relatively fortunate position in that they are currently going through their education and they will come out the end of all of this with their grade. Now, they will have been taught online and they will have had their tutorials and their lectures and their seminars online. But at the end of the day, they're still going to get that bit of paper. And that bit of paper is the gateway to a future career in which they may or may not earn, you know, a, a decent living. I mean, at the end of the day, students will, will still be qualified. So in some ways, is it not the case that students have actually been, they're quite protected in, in this pandemic because their education continues. Whereas for other people, their businesses don't continue and their families don't continue. Well, no, I think students have been incredibly impacted by this pandemic um, and we can see that through the impact on our student wellbeing services. Students are finding it incredibly um, tough right now in terms of their mental health. Um, yes, they are still getting their education, um, but it's about the, their experience of their education. Um, and you, the experience that I had in Queen's is 
you know, vastly different than what a student who has been studying this year will have. Um, and I think it goes back to seeing students as somehow separate from society. You know, students are members of society and the same pressures that impact anybody um, across the other sectors also have an impact on students. Um, so it goes to very basic arguments of, of fairness um, and, and, you know, treating students like, um, you know, they, they deserve to be treated. And I suppose there is an argument always for the fact that, you know, students are going to get this degree. And um, but we have a campaign that's called Students Deserve Better for a reason. And it's because the service that they have gotten this year just hasn't been comparable um, to what's gone before. OK, and let's talk about a, a slightly different thing then, Jason, which is uh, it was coming up to the time of year when more and more students are being examined. You have a thing called a safety net campaign. Talk us through what this is, because sometimes there can be some confusion. And I certainly admit to being confused between what in England they call a no detriment policy, what exactly that means. Talk us through what this uh, what this piece of advocacy is all about. Yes. So last March, um, there was a conversation um, across the UK around different mitigating measures for students to make sure that they didn't suffer any disadvantage as a result of COVID. Um, so that was partly because we were very unprepared, obviously, as a university and as a higher education sector for all the changes that would um, that COVID would pose. Um, so you're right, the phrase no detriment or safety net has come to mean many different things. But in essence, um, what we're asking for is something um, specific to this year. Um, that is a package of mitigating measures to ensure that um, students have a kind of what we call a safety net. But in essence, it's just reassurance um, that the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic um, will mean that they will not suffer any academic disadvantage. Because um, we know how difficult it is. Um, and it goes back and what does to, that mean in real terms? What does that mean in real terms, Jason? I mean, what are you asking for as a union that the university do? I mean, what are these mitigating measures? Yes, so there's a package of them. So the main one um, for us is a free uncapped reset opportunities um, for all students, whether you pass or you fail. Um, so right now, if um, if you fail a module, you can um, reset, but it's capped at 40%. Um, and we think assessment is for learning, it's not for punishment. So students should be able to reset their assessments. Um, and it's just about having that reassurance that, you know, if anything goes wrong this time, you'll have that second attempt. There's also um, another few measures um, such as 24-hour submission periods for exams. Um, so that doesn't mean you spend 24 hours on your exams. That means that you have a 24-hour window in which to complete your exams. Um, particularly important for international students who are completing their assignments in different time zones, um, maybe in the middle of the night. Um, and particularly important when using your shells, like there's so many aspects of busy households, childcare, um, parenting responsibilities that can impact your ability to do well in an assessment. So that's another aspect of the safety net. Um, the other thing is around late penalties, um, which is really just about flexibility for deadlines. So it means if you, you know, if you don't get your assignment done exactly on time, then we don't penalise you five or ten percent like like we normally do. Um, Let me ask you this, Jason. So th these all sound like things which, on the face of it, are, are quite sensible. Things like a twenty-four hour submission period. I wonder what your thoughts are on this, though. So uh, a twenty-four hour submission period, it, it, you believe, is brought in in order to uh, accommodate for the people who have caring responsibility 
responsibilities or whatever it is. But there will certainly also be people who have none of those responsibilities, who now have 24 hours in which to work on an assignment when otherwise they might have had you know, one hour, two hours, and everybody would have one hour or two hours, is an unintended consequence of these kind of policies that actually assessments and assignments become easier for some students. No, I don't think so, because um, what the 24-hour assessment periods do is just give a level playing field to folks who might not be able to complete it in a very narrow time window. But you've raised a good point there around, um, around really the design of the assessment. So it should be the fact that you shouldn't be spending the 24 hours on the assessment. Um, and we've produced guidance with the Centre for Education Development in Queen's that um, it makes that clear to students. But essentially, it's about how you're examined and how you're assessed. Um, and you should be examined and assessed based on not on road recall, because we don't think that does anything for your education, um, but instead on your ability to solve problems, to apply your knowledge, to work through and communicate um, your, and articulate. It is still your, easier to do all that in 24 hours than two hours, though, Jason. I mean, surely if everybody's in the same situation then, uh, do you know what I mean? It's going to be, it will be the case, will it not? And it seems like you can't deny this, that for some students, having 24 hours makes assignments easier. See, I don't know whether you've actually um, completed a 24-hour uh, take-home assessment before, but it really, it's not easy. And I know you might think that because, like, you've got all this time. Um, but quite often the reason why you have an hour window is so that students can budget their time. Um, so in some senses, actually, it is a little bit of a challenge. And that's why there's a piece around teaching students how to manage their workload and manage their time um, and you know working with those academic skills as well to make sure that the students can get their heads around to set 24 hours so I, I know the point you're trying to make but it's um it is, it is a little bit complex as well on some okay some uh, well let me ask you this we've discussed the possibility of success for a reduction in tuition fees what is the possibility of success here because my feeling is that that's probably higher well, you would hope so. You would hope so. Um, I think that we do have an opportunity here um, to communicate to the, to the staff just the position of, of where students are and, um, and to make sure that our mitigating measures are enough. I suppose there are a number of measures that have been put in place this year um, that the university would see as sufficient. Um, and now it's about trying to win that argument where we're, we're trying to communicate that students need more um, and indeed, you know, they deserve more and they deserve better. Um, so, you know, we're hoping for a win, we're hoping for success for students, um, but it's by no means guaranteed. Um, but we do know that students feel very strongly about this. We launched an open letter to the Vice-Chancellor and um, kept it open, I think, just for a week or so, and it had over 2,000 signatures in that in that space of time. Um, so if, you, uh, if you're going to tell me that, that Vice-Chancellors and universities won't listen to 2,000 students who are calling for something, then I think they'd be making a big mistake. Okay. Uh, that, well, 2,000 is less than 10% of the, the student body at Queen's, right? It is, but when's the last time you saw a survey that had 2,000 signatures and, and, you know, had it in a week on social media and we can't even <laughs> ask anybody in person? It's a massive, it's a massive amount of students to, to be calling for anything. Um, you know, that's as many votes as we get. So um, I think it's it's really important uh, that the university listens. And, um, and yeah, just, I mean, if you had 2,000 students doing anything, I think we should listen. Okay, Jason, thank you very much for giving up your time talking to us. We will be having you back on to update us on how 
both of those campaigns go over the next number of weeks. Jason, thank you very much. Jason Bunting there, uh, QUBSU officer for education and um, uh, acolyte adored by many on QUB Love. Thank you very much. That's Jason. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Now it's time for everybody's favourite segment on the show. We're joined by Rebecca Dobbin Donaghy to give us some of the best and good news stories of the week. Rebecca, thanks for being with us. No problem at all, Thomas. Glad to be back. Rebecca, how was your Christmas? Um, quiet, but I enjoyed it, to be honest. Um, sometimes it's actually better being quiet. Usually I'm working flat out over Christmas, so it was good to have a break. Let me write that down. Rebecca Dobbin Donaghy, sometimes it's better to be quiet. Yeah. Something, words she has never lived by. I've right? never said that before, ever. <laughs> give, give us some good news stories. Give us the first good news story you're going to um, Yeah, so basically because we've missed like a month, I just thought I'd recap on like my two favourite good news stories that have happened this year so far. Um, so my first one basically is, I think unless you were living under a rock somewhere, um, you'll have seen Bernie Sanders sitting on that chair um, all wrapped up in his wee mittens. Um just the memes on it were unbelievable for a start. But um, what he did was he took that photo of him sitting on his chair and he put it on a jumper, his merchandise site. I don't know why American politicians seem to have merchandise. Um, I think we should really look into that. Just like, I don't know, have like Arlene Foster on a jumper and be walking about like that. But um, I think it's something they should look into. But yeah, so he basically launched it on his merchandise site, just a photo of the way him sitting on his chair and everything, the sweatshirts, the t-shirts, the stickers, everything sold out in under 30 minutes. And then they put up more supplies and again, they were just completely disappeared. Um, and basically all that money was going towards Vermont, Maidles on Wales. So that's, um, he's from Vermont himself and it was like a home charity. And he raised about 1.82 million um, in the space wow. of about five days for those charities. Um, and the same, the mittens, I know everyone was mad looking at her mittens just like Bernie's and they were made um, by a Vermont primary school teacher. And she said that she couldn't make any more mittens because she actually has like a job, which is fair enough. Um, but what she's did is worked closely along with like a load of other Vermont charities and a load of other um, businesses around the area. And they're making Bernie mitten themed um merchandise and stuff and again all that money is going towards um charities in vermont sort of to make up some of the shortfalls it's nice that isn't it because it'd be so easy especially with american politicians to put all that money straight into the campaign funds or whatever into funding your next election campaign that's a good first story rebecca give us a second one what's your next good story Uh, good news story of the week my second one that i absolutely loved um happened there just at the start of the year in january um, I think we've all made questionable decisions while we're drunk and we've definitely made questionable decisions during lockdown. Um, but there was a lad in Staffordshire in England who got so drunk while watching a recording of a Celine Dion concert that um, he accidentally went and formally changed his name from Thomas Dodd to Celine Dion. Um, what's even better is that he had absolutely no memory of it until like the certificates of his name change arrived in the post like a few days later. And it was only then that he started to like piece all that stuff together again um he also says he's not planning on changing it back which is i don't know what's what's the worst decision the fact that he did it in the first place or the fact that he's decided to stick bad um so like that's like a formal name change that he can put on his like driving license his passports everything so 
I don't know what his plans are, but fair play to him for sticking to his guns in that decision. Well, yeah, called Celine Dion from now on, Rebecca. Thank you very much. Uh, now, this is another exciting piece of news from you. Uh, tell us, Rebecca, you have a, a new podcast coming out uh, starting every Monday from tomorrow. What is your podcast, Rebecca, and what can we expect from it? Yeah, so um, for some reason, I've been given the free reign to have my own show. So that's um, going to be the good news scoop, and that's going to be coming out every Monday. And um, basically what it is, um, it's a bit like this here. It's just a wee pocket of positivity and good vibes just to start your week off maybe on a high. Um, I'm going to be interviewing people from like different charities and things like that. People just that are doing really inspiring and good things. Um, so on this week's show, I have Caroline O'Neill, which some of you might have seen on Facebook and Instagram. She's got maybe 100,000 followers, but she's, she's an influencer. But at the same time, she's doing an awful lot of charity work. Um, she raised over a quarter of a million pounds worth of goods at Christmas there in her Dig Deep campaign. Um, so it was Dig Deep for Kids and that was to stop basically any child having their Christmas changed by COVID. So all children um, were ensured to have gifts to wake up on Christmas morning and there was going to be no shortage of food or anything like that for any families. Fantastic. Rebecca, that's such a good idea. I'm looking forward to listening to it because I want to hear uh, a little bit of positivity in my week as well. So the Good News podcast you'll be able to listen to on a Monday afternoon uh, on Queen's Radio and on all of our usual social medias. Rebecca, thank you so much. Rebecca Dobbin Donaghy there from the Good News Scoop uh, giving us a little bit of positivity on this Sunday evening. Thank you so much, Rebecca. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, I'm joined now on the show by Esther George uh, from Sri Lanka, recently graduated with a master's degree in psychology from Queen's. Esther, thanks for being with us. You were stuck in Belfast over Christmas. I know most of us hate being in Belfast most of the time. You were here as opposed to being in Sri Lanka over Christmas. Uh, what was that like? Talk me through what happened. Uh, it was quite disappointing, to be honest, because uh, we had so many plans as friends to travel around and experience Belfa um, uh, the Belfast Christmas. And uh, we were also planning to travel around Europe and experience a bit of Christmas around these parts of the world, because probably this is our only chance. Um, so it was quite disappointing to um, be stuck at home and almost to be doing nothing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and did you miss being at home in Sri Lanka over Christmas? Or, I mean, were there things you thought when you were stuck in Belfast, oh, I just wish I was home? Um, I think, of course, there was a lot to be um, missing back at home, like the food and family, friends and uh, everything. But I think more than that, it was the disappointment of not being able to experience Christmas here. Because for me and most of my friends who did our masters, we just had two Christmases here and we wanted to experience as much as we could and last year i mean 2019 was uh not much because we had just come over to belfast and it was just a couple of months so we didn't really know much about belfast and where we could go what we could do so we were quite ready to experience like almost the whole of december just uh, traveling and doing whatever we could um during uh, the 2020 december What's, what are the big differences, Esther, between Christmas at home for you in Sri Lanka and Christmas in Belfast? Because I suppose some people here, you know, probably think, oh, Belfast at Christmas, it's really boring. It's not interesting. You were stuck here because of the pandemic. I mean, what are the, what are the really big differences between Christmas for you at home and Christmas in Belfast? Um, so, yeah, I, I would have to agree with you that 
Belfast Christmas is not so much. I mean, I, I expected a lot more just coming into the West. Um, but the major difference that I can say is that Sri Lanka is a multi-religious country. So we are just a couple of uh, um, Christians in Sri Lanka and it's a majority Buddhist country. So not everyone would be celebrating Christmas. Uh, of course, we like to decorate around and most of the people would enjoy decorating their homes, having trees and uh, even the roads and shops are decorated. Uh, but just a different experience having to be able to uh, experience snow and like the little things that um, we, we sometimes don't even realize, I would say, like, um, I don't even know because we couldn't experience much. Let, let me ask you this, because I, this is something I find interesting. I, I decided this conversation entirely, Esther, which yeah. is that, you know, in this part of the world, we have this strong association between snow, at, you know, and Christmas and Christmas is cold weather. Now, mm. obviously, that isn't the same in Sri Lanka. But do you sort of get, do you get sort of impressions of that, of Christmas being somehow related to snow when you're at home in Sri Lanka, even though obviously that isn't the case? Mm -hmm. I think... Uh, like even the carols, like thinking about white Christmas and stuff, it didn't make sense at all back at home. Like we would wonder what is white because for us Christmas was just red and green. And then to know that, okay, this is what's uh, what's uh, meant by white Christmas and just uh, the cold weather and everything, because sometimes our Decembers are never cold. So just to know that uh, when we associate with either readings or hymns or carols, certain words like having the cold winds blowing and stuff. So it's a it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and let me ask you this, Esther, you're obviously an international student. Did you know of many international students who were stuck in Northern Ireland, uh, unable to go home or for Christmas? And was there any kind of bonding, any connection between the international students who were here? Yeah, so... Uh, my batch of um, students, especially the master students, I think most of them had left, like most of my friends uh, got the opportunity to go back home. Uh, but a couple of us who were staying back, we really um, sort of didn't have an option. And um, the other thing, like for me, since I'm, an, uh, I'm now interning for the Presbyterian Chaplaincy of Queens, um, I'm in a position where I can sort of get in touch with other international students and uh, organize events, of course, with the restrictions, it's very difficult. But um, uh, one of the difficulties that I faced is to get in touch with the international students, because especially the students who had come last September, we had no contacts, no access. Uh, whereas uh, the other years when there were no restrictions, we would just walk along streets and meet students, or we would have so many events, and it was much easier to meet students. So I know there are there were quite a number of students stuck here not being able to do anything. Mm -hmm. um, so I was able to organize just a little uh, brunch and lunch with limited numbers. And then whoever came for that just enjoyed the most mm -hmm. of it. Do you know when you're going to be able to go back to Sri Lanka, back home again, um, Esther? Um, since the UK flights right now have uh, been temporarily stopped, banned from most countries, including Sri Lanka, I'm not quite sure. Uh, trying to work out my visa and see if I can extend it for a short period just because I'm interning and um, I can sort of do more with that. So just mm -hmm. so uncertain. Everything is uncertain these days. 
And next Christmas, now, you, this Christmas, you were hoping to do some traveling and see Belfast. Next Christmas, will you want to go back to Sri Lanka and be with your family? Or do you think you'll try to do some, like, have another go at doing some traveling next year? I think if if things get better, like with the vaccine and everything, if things get better, I would definitely love to travel. But depending on how my visa permits, uh, but definitely just to make the most of it, if I get that opportunity, travel and do whatever I missed last Christmas. Absolutely. Esther, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. And I hope that you can get back uh, when you want home and you're not stuck in Belfast for too much longer. I really feel for you. Esther George there uh, from Sri Lanka, graduated with a master's degree earlier in the year, stuck in Belfast over Christmas, and she's very kindly chatted to us today. Thank you, Esther. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, let's move on. I'm joined now by Sean Stars from the QUB SDLP. Um, this week, the SDLP has launched a petition for a support payment to every Northern Ireland student, a payment of £500 to each student, which they say would cost approximately £32 million. Um, I'm joined now by Sean. Sean, talk us through this petition. Why do students deserve to get £500 from the Department of the Economy? Well, students need more support than ever before, and they have suffered disproportionately throughout this uh, pandemic and have experienced difficulties with the cost of living. Like while every other part of society have been treated as though we are in this global pandemic, students have been treated time after time as a business as usual. We've been given no serious financial support from the NI executive. And it's clearly shown that students are supporting this with over 6,000 signatures on this uh, petition alone. Mm-hmm. Why do all students deserve this money though, Sean? I mean, earlier on in this show, we've been talking about how working class students are disproportionately underrepresented at university. Um, students have been given support if they're workers. They have the option to go into unemployment status in certain areas. They've been furloughed in some areas. They also have access to maintenance loans and tuition fees at low interest. Surely there are definitely some students who 100% need £500, but not all students. Well, I would disagree. All students need this payment. Students have suffered. We have, for example, if we look at the survey, 94% of students have suffered uh, have suffered badly with their mental health during this pandemic. £500 would go a long way, and I've done that personally as a student. 75% of students have also faced financial distress. So this like idea that not all students are suffering, only a minority is not true. Um, 61% of students have also lost part-time work and are getting very little from furlough. 78% of students feel excluded from the COVID-19 uh, package, financial support that's been given by the government. And... 41% of students are paying for properties which they aren't, which they can't currently live in. Mm-hmm. So this money uh, would help them. Okay, uh, let, let me ask you this, Sean. I suppose there's definitely some people out there who would look at this and say, um, students, like I said, have access to the maintenance loans and the tuition fees. Other people in society might say, I've lost my business. I can't work anymore. I can't go to my taxi driver job anymore. I don't have a job. I can't put food on the table for my entire family. 32 million could go an awful long way to supporting people across the breadth of society rather than just students. Is it not the case that what we want to do is support all of society because students are a part of society rather than targeting money at students? Well, students haven't seen any sort of financial support. Also, if you look at Dan Dodds, it's just hand back £105 million to the Department of Economy. 
Um, this means it's likely going to be cut by the Tory government, which we're not going to see that money ever again. And this is a time when we need this money more than ever. And students are only asking for $32 million. The rest of it could go and help people, other people who are struggling during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Um, how much? Uh, how do you get to this figure of $32 million? Uh, Sean, £500 for each student. Does that include students who are at third level technical colleges, regional colleges, or is that just the universities? Um, I, I'm i not exactly sure how to get to that figure, but I, I, I don't know. Okay. okay, that's fair. And let me ask you this. How would uh, this payment actually be dispensed? I mean, does it not cost an awful lot of money to set up a bureaucracy in the civil service in order to get how many million students, uh, sorry, hundreds of thousands of students to hand over their payment details in order to get £500? Is it actually the case that there will be £32 million here or will be substantially less than that because of bureaucracy costs? Well, if you look at student finance, they already have basically everyone's uh, banking details. It shouldn't cost that much in the grand scheme of things to actually help and get just give some sort of support for students they desperately need. Mm-hmm. Have you been struggling, Sean? Um, yeah, I've been struggling to even just pay my rent, just even stuff just like heating, um, electricity, even small stuff like even paying for the Wi-Fi every month and just my phone bill and stuff. It's just all adding up. Mm-hmm. You talked about mental health there, Sean, as well. And I don't want to make it you know, too personal. Is that something that you've felt yourself uh, sort of affected or had your mental health um, standard thought, of life decrease as a result of this pandemic? Um, I currently have coronavirus right now. That's why I'm self-isolating the rest of my house. I know, so I've already like been by myself for a couple of days, and it has been affecting me a wee bit. But I'm not going to say, compared to most people, I've I've got off lucky. But like even to say, 94% of students are affected badly from this mental health. When it's like Dan Dodds and others going to wake up and smell the coffee that students need help. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you get coronavirus, Sean? Um, I tested positive on Tuesday there, but I've had symptoms from about Sunday, Saturday, Sunday. Wow. So. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose it's a difficult position that you're in at the moment. How are you finding uh, having coronavirus? Have you felt the symptoms yourself or has it been easier um, for yeah, you? Yeah, I've, no, yeah, I've had symptoms. I've had high temperature, a bad cough. I'm surprised I haven't coughed in this yet. Um, and I've had a really bad headache. I've been taking paracetamol to try to deal with it. But yeah, can't first. Okay, uh, Sean, where can students go if they're interested in this scheme? Where can they go to try to sign the petition? Um, there's a petition on, if you just look up Queen's SCLP on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it should be there. Even I think uh, the SCLP have also shared their own uh, website. So just look up SCLP Queen's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Sean Starr, thank you very much for being with us from the QUB SCLP. Thank right, you so thanks much. For having me. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Okay, and we're joined now by Lauren McCann from the Sporty Scoop. Lauren, it's been ages since we've had you on. Give us an idea of a sports roundup, uh, and then we're going to talk about an article that you have coming out on the Scoop News blog tomorrow. Why don't we start with Danske Bank Premiership. Race for the title and for survival has been pretty exciting. Even I've managed to pick up on that. Give us an update. (laughs) Um, yeah, so the Danske Bank Premiership returned last weekend. Um, there was a two-week break, and despite the COVID testing, which has now been introduced, it was actually the weather which disrupted the scheduling of games during the week. Dungannon and Glenavon was called off, and Warren Point Balamina was also postponed because of 
the bad weather here. Um, the shock result on Tuesday was that Cliftonville twice came from behind to defeat Champions Linfield 4-3. It was a great game of solitude. Um, the Blues are unable to bounce back this weekend because their game against Dungannon has been called off um, in line with the COVID regulations. Um, Tuesday's result left the title race wide open for Lorne, but they failed to capitalise. They suffered a 2-1 loss to Coleraine on Tuesday night and then drew 1-1 with Glen Torn tomorrow night, or last night, sorry. And they're now without a win this year. Um, elsewhere, Portadown boosted their push for survival with a 2-2 draw against Crusaders, scoring a late equaliser. And Glen Torn continued their good form of late with a win over Carrick um, before their draw with Lorne and they stretched their run of games without defeat to six. Um, there's also four fixtures taking place later on today. Cliftonville are hosting Glen Avon. Crusaders are travelling to Coleraine for a crucial game at the top. And there's an, also an important battle at the bottom with Portadown entertaining Warren Point and Carrick versus Balamina completes this weekend's fixtures. Right. And what about the transfer deadline day? That's looming. Um, some late business this week. Um, yeah, so the big news this week was that um, Dungannon announced the signing of 43-year-old goalkeeper Roy Carroll. Um, the ex-Man United stopper was released by Limfield um, in 2019 after he had a serious knee injury, but now he's back in the league to aid Dungannon's survival push. Um, elsewhere, Cliff and Bell have been very busy. Um, this morning, they announced the signing of um, Irish Youth International Barry Coffey, unknown from Celtic. He joins Chris Lowe, who signed from Dungannon during the week as their fifth edition in a busy window with Aaron McCurry, Owen Taggart and Rory Hale also coming in and Chairman Jart Lawler has sent an ominous tweet this morning with more signings set to be announced um, today. Mm. Linfield also brought in two players this week, um, Rangers midfielder Cammy Palmer and former Northern Ireland under-21 defender Michael Newbury joining the champions on 18-month deals. Um, that allowed their, they then allowed their winger Eamon Skinnell to link up with strugglers ported down unknown for the remainder of the season. Glen Avon um, centre-backs Daniel Armour's uh, sealed the switch to Crusaders on a three-year deal and in turn the Middlestar club have acted quickly to find his replacement. They brought in Dergview centre-back um, Lee McNulty and finally Balamina secured the services of highly rated Northern Ireland youth international Ben Wiley until the end of the season. He he comes in on them from Celtic. All right, okay. And what about rugby? Good news for Ulster fans this week. Um, yeah, the current leaders are the Pro 14. Um, they're in the middle of a six-week break at the moment, but they've secured new contracts for 14 of their players, so it's been very busy. Um, Australia Lock, um, Sam Carter and their back, Michael Laurie, are the latest. They've signed two-year extensions. Um, they join their captain, Craig Gilroy, flanker Marcus Ray, and centre Angus Curtis, who's recovering from injury and committing their futures to the province side. Um, the trio have agreed one-year deals. And then earlier in the week, they also tied down Ireland internationals Rob Herring and Ian Madigan, as well as other members of Dan McFarlane's side, such as Alan O'Connor, Luke Marshall, Aaron Saxon, John Andrews, Andrew Warwick, Kieran Treadwell and Nathan Doak. So also we're very busy this week. And what about Ireland? They've announced their squad for Six Nations this week. How's that looking? Uh, how far away actually until the Six Nations kicks off? Um, so it actually starts next Sunday. Um, Ireland are away to Wales and their coach Andy Farrell's named his 36-man squad. Um, Jacob Stockdale's a notable absentee. He's continuing a recovery from injury. He picked up at the start of the month. They're hoping to maybe bring him in for games later on in the tournament, but it's not yet known. Um, uncapped duo Craig Casey and Tom O'Toole have made the cut along with Leinster back row Reese Ruddock, who hasn't actually featured for Ireland since the 2019 World Cup. 
Johnny Sexton will again captain his country as second successive Six Nations as captain and Ian Henderson, Tag Furlow, Peter O'Mahony and James Lowe, James Lowe have been included despite injury concerns. Um, Luke, from Luke McGrath, John Cooney, Jack Hardy and Kieran O'Mahon have all been overlooked, which was a bit of a surprise, but there's hope for Ireland. And finally, GAA, Lauren. Um, yeah, so the governing body hope to start the National Leagues in March. Um, they've conceded that a return to action next month is infeasible, given the clubs have yet to resume training, with most of the clubs obviously being based in the Republic of Ireland, where level five restrictions have prevented any sort of training. Um, the 2021 campaign is going to feature a regionalised league structure, so it'll restrict travel cross-county. And the GAA COVID advisory group is going to meet next week to decide a start date for the league. Okay. Um, you've got a piece tomorrow, uh, or today, I should say, going on the Scoop News blog, Lauren. It's an interesting one. Uh, talk us through the, the general idea, because it's really about that interaction, isn't it, between fans and players in football? Yeah, definitely. And I think um, in the Irish League, it's particularly prevalent. You know, the grounds are so small and it's not like the Premier League. You know, you go do the games each week. It's really affordable to go. And there's such a sense of community in the Irish League. You know, those who watch it really enjoy it. And I think that's really been missed recently. You know, I'd said about the lack of quality, but I've kind of been proven wrong this week with some of the results, but mm. especially the 4-3 game, um, Cliffinville Linfield, or even the 3-3 draw between Lauren Crusaders, you know, after the game, so many players saying that was for the fans and how much they would have Lauren, enjoyed being there. What about you personally? I mean, you're right in it that your dad started bringing you and your brother to games from a very young age. What's it like for you, for, for you, I suppose, going to the football and watching from the sidelines is as natural as for somebody else, you know, taking a walk in the park or, or any other kind of recreational activity? What's it been like being torn away uh, from, uh, from watching the game that you love up close and personal? Yeah, it's been really difficult, particularly for my family. I'm lucky enough that being part of Cliftonville's media team, I can go to the games, but it's kind of sad when, you know, a goal scored and there's nobody there to celebrate with. You know, I text my brother and my dad at home, but it's not the same them, you know, not being there. They're really missing it. I think they're a bit envious that I still get to go. But as you said, it's like, it's such a normal part of our routine. You know, every Saturday, that's what we do. That's our time set aside to go to the games together. And yeah, it's really sad. And I'm sure many people are feeling that as well. Absolutely. And before we finish, Lauren, give us an idea of what's on the Sporty Scoop this week. Um, so this week we're welcoming local sports journalist Josh Bunting on the show. On the show, um, he's going to chat to us about his career to date, as well as the Irish Premiership and women's f- football, both locally and across the water. And we'll be also chatting about the ever-changing Premier League table and looking ahead to the Six Nations starting next week. Perfect, Lauren. And when can people listen to the Sporty Scoop? It'll be out on Wednesday at two o'clock. Out on Wednesday at two o'clock, Lauren. Thank you so much, uh, Lauren McCann, there from uh, the Sporty Scoop. Uh, giving us an update on everything sporty. Uh, This is a Scoop on Sunday. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for on tonight's show. I want to thank all of our guests who uh, gave up their time to speak to us. I want to thank my fantastic news team for supporting me in this show and all of the work of The Scoop. If you're interested in getting involved as well, send us a message on our social media or contact us via email, thescoop at queensradio.org. Don't forget, you've got all of your podcasts this week to look forward to. On Mondays, The Good News Scoop. Tuesdays, The Trendy Scoop. Wednesdays, Sporty Scoop, Thursdays, Eco Scoop, Fridays, The Mental Health Scoop, and I'll be back next Sunday for The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for your company this evening. Night-night.